Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, this is Kai. Uh, Just a reminder that what you're about to listen to is the second part of this week's show. We've changed things up in the podcast feed. We're breaking the show up into segments to give you a little more control over what you listen to and when. So uh, if you want the first part of the show, go back. That's the last thing in your feed. And of course, if you want the whole show all together, go check us out at WNYC's YouTube page. That's where you can get everything. Okay, so take a listen. This is the United States of Anxiety. I'm Kai Wright, and I am here with my WNYC colleague, Tracy Hunt. Hey, Tracy. Hi, Kai. So we've been talking about gun violence this week. And when you heard about this episode, you said there was someone you felt like our listeners really needed to meet. Yeah. um, So, like, just to set this up a little bit. You know, for me, the last few years have felt relentless. I'm sure that's been the same for you, Kai. There's been all this gun violence. There's been COVID, the murder of George Floyd. I keep thinking about how, even though many of us have been lucky to not have experienced these things firsthand, Mm -hmm. the sheer volume and frequency of these tragedies must be having some effect on our bodies and our minds. And I kept coming back to this idea of grief and how I wasn't sure we as a country were grieving properly. And, you know, I didn't really know what my question was, my big question, Mm -hmm. but I knew a good person to talk about it with was Nalba Marquez-Green. And now who is that? So Nalba is a mom and she's a family and marriage therapist. And about 10 years ago, something happened that made her an unwilling expert in grief. Her daughter, Anna Grace, was killed at Sandy Hook Elementary School. And I've been following Nelba on Twitter for a few years. And this might sound weird, but I really grew to admire the way she was grieving out loud. What what does that even mean, grieving out loud? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's easier to let you hear how she describes it herself. But for me, she has become the very public face for this normally very private journey. Mm-hmm. So I hopped on the computer with her and it immediately felt intimate. Good morning. Good morning. She was in her home office. I was in my bedroom. Her dark curly hair was on top of her head like in a bun. And she was wearing this pink T-shirt with the word Latina in cursive written across it. And as we said hello, we were both preparing to talk about something really personal. Yeah, my candle is lit. Yeah, okay. why don't you light a candle? Just okay. get yourself <laughs> calm. I have like, my... Lotion, maybe I'll get my lotion. And I started with telling her what grief has been like for me. I've been wanting to talk to you for a while because 
Um, you know, I started following your Twitter account a few years ago, and it was right around the time that my uncle died of cancer and my family was having a really hard time. And the way I was dealing with it was that I was trying every day not to think about him. <laughs> because if I did, you know, I would cry and then I'd, I'd get upset with myself for crying. And then I stumbled on your account and you were, it seemed to me, like you were tweeting about your daughter, Anna Grace, every day. It'll be a joke Anna told you or a video of her singing while her brother plays the piano. Just these really beautiful, intimate moments from her life. And I kept thinking like, how is she doing that? And I was like, wait, wait, am I, am I doing this wrong? There's no norms in grief, right? There yeah. are ebbs and flows, but there are no norms. So perhaps by not thinking about your uncle, it wasn't that there was something wrong with you, but maybe that was with your mind and body and spirit needed to do to handle that loss in the moment for you. Right. Dissociation gets a bad rap, but it's mm -hmm. not necessarily a bad thing. It can be a tool for survival. So if yeah. in those moments of grief, you needed to put the sacred, precious memories of your uncle in a place to save for a time where you would feel safer or uh, more protected or more supported, mm -hmm. then I'm grateful to you for listening to that because the worst thing we do in grief is become prescriptive and say, yeah. you know, I follow this Puerto Rican woman on Twitter <laughs> and she talks about her loved one every day. So here's what we're all going to do. Talk about our loved ones. That's not the right recipe for everybody. Right. What we need to do when they're grieving is honor our process and ensure safety yeah. and holiness, which is something that gets defiled all the time. Mm -hmm. That's just my way. I, sometimes I talk about her. Sometimes I talk about Costco. Yeah. <laughs> you know, sometimes I talk about birding, mm -hmm. but I want the privilege and the control of when I share her memories to be mine. Can you remember like maybe the first time you did that? And were you like scared of putting uh, something precious about her online? Probably the first time was like a month after she died. I set mm -hmm. up a Facebook chronicling my memories of her on a page mm. called Remembering Anna Marquez Green. And it's me telling very intimate stories mm -hmm. about Anna because I wanted people to remember Anna, yeah. not Sandy Hook. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that happens to survivors of highly publicized tragedy mm -hmm. is that you lose a sense of safety and you lose a sense of control. It's yeah. not just losing your person. There are pages dedicated to you on social media with pictures of your loved one you have not endorsed. There are people, both organizations and individuals, fundraising on your back of your loss. It yeah. is incredibly gross. So I decided I wanted to be the keeper of her voice and memory. And I have to say this every year. Hey, in my daughter's name, nobody gets to put her picture on a poster or mm -hmm. a, a graphic without talking to her family. In the days following the school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, Nelba says her inbox was flooded with requests. Gun control advocates wanted her to release her daughter's autopsy photos. Their reasoning was that seeing the true devastation of what bullets do to bodies, especially children's bodies, might galvanize Americans' support for gun control. This argument was repeated all over social media and even by some high-profile voices. 
Someone actually said, well, you don't have to then do the autopsy photo. Well, just the crime scene. And you know what I want to say? Well, you obviously do not remember that my child was the only black child. Mm-hmm. Because you can't just randomly put a crime scene of dead bodies out there. Anna would be the most visible. We want to save lives. But we can't save lives compromising the people who are already struggling to live mm-hmm. in the process. Nelba won't be sharing any photos of Anna's body. She believes the photos she's already shared of her daughter, alive, vibrant, and absolutely adorable with big dark eyes, brown skin, curly hair, and dimples, should be enough to change anyone's mind about gun control. So we have a box that holds our daughter's clothes that she was wearing um, on the last day that she was alive. Mm -hmm. And someone processed the clothes, it cleaned it, you know, laid it beautifully and put it in a purple box with a bow. Mm -hmm. I haven't opened it. My husband hasn't opened it. And it's here. It's actually in my office in the closet on top. But just to kind of imagine myself taking that box and walking through the halls of Congress, like, I do not owe you sacrificing myself Mm -hmm. for people who have shown us over and over again that they will not do the right thing. You don't get to sacrifice me or ask me to sacrifice myself on that altar. Yeah. I'm sitting here trying my best to survive. You know, grief makes people uncomfortable. Why do you think that is, that people are so, like, can't deal with grieving people? It's terrifying. Who Mm -hmm. wants to be me? I walk in a room, and I'm a reminder of an American nightmare. Yeah. Nobody Mm -hmm. wants to be reminded that you could do all the right things, go to church, tithe, pay your taxes, own a home, Mm -hmm. live in a suburb, and lose a kid in a shooting. Nobody wants to be reminded of that, specifically to gun violence. That's part of it. And nobody knows what to say because we're also people who want to fix things. Mm -hmm. And when I walk in a room, I have made it clear that you are not going to fix this until the day I meet Jesus Mm -hmm. and I see Anna again. This hole doesn't get fixed. Mm -hmm. We have taught people, if you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, if you do enough work, if you go to enough therapy, you won't be grieving anymore. You will be recovered. Well, let me be the first to say that that's the biggest load of bullshit. Like, and it hurts people. Um, You're a therapist, and even before this happened, you had patients that were grieving and that you were helping through that process. And... I was wondering, when you were on your own journey, was there anything about your process that surprised you? How little I knew, how little I knew about the darkness, about the ever-present weight. I am a much better supporter and clinician to parents, families that I work with who have experienced loss than I ever was before. Mm -hmm. I consider that a sacred privilege. I feel like we haven't sat down and like actually experienced or like thought about the million plus people who have died in this country. And I'm wondering, yeah. how do we do that as a nation? Is that something that's even possible? How does a country who never acknowledged and has never really formally acknowledged the grief of enslaving people, mm-hmm. the grief of how we let down folks in the HIV AIDS community of the grief 
of Columbine, of Oklahoma City, how do we expect them to grieve now? COVID or George Floyd. Mm -hmm. We are a grief-averse culture who refuses to feel anything. We want to think our way through, right? Mm -hmm. And when we think our way through, then we can think that we're going to be better if we just put those unpleasant, uncomfortable feelings that cause us to self-reflect away. Mm -hmm. But that's kind of what I do with my Twitter feed. If you're reading what I'm writing and you're thinking and not feeling, something is wrong. Nalba also uses her social media to talk about other victims of gun violence and the families they've left behind. I've actually tweeted about Trayvon Martin Mm -hmm. before, like, please support his mom at Sabrina Fulton. And there is very rarely times where I get uglier comments than when I post Mm -hmm. about victims the world has not sanctioned as angelic. Mm-hmm. I feel like there are victims of gun violence we care about because of age or circumstance, certainly mm-hmm. school shootings is one of those. And then there are mothers, mostly black mothers. Let's be 100% real. We forced to carry a dossier of their child's activities and, and, and goodness in order to give a shit about them. Yeah. And that makes me so angry. If you sent a teddy bear here, mm-hmm. tell me why you are not sending teddy bears mm-hmm. when this happens in Chicago or in Hartford. Or mm-hmm. That's a real question we have to reconcile and grapple with if we want to move the needle on gun violence because we are basically assigning empathy. And I've said yeah. before that empathy drives resources. Empathy also drives solutions, mm-hmm. right? We have to be honest about who we are, why we want solutions, and who we want solutions for. And I want you to want solutions for the families of Uvalde, for the families of Buffalo, for Sabrina Fulton, and for Celeste. Can you tell me a little bit about Celeste? Um, so I think it was January of 2013, and I read this article about a dad and a mom who have mm-hmm. lost a child, and they're saying, I know my child was the wrong color and in the wrong city mm-hmm. to be grieved, but we too deserve your empathy and compassion. Celeste Fulcher's 26-year-old daughter was shot and killed in a nightclub. Five others were injured. This was about a year after Nalba lost her daughter. And after reading about Celeste and her husband, she called a reporter covering the story and asked to be connected. Nalba says she was moved to reach out to the family because she believes that if Anna had been shot and killed under different circumstances, like in a poorer, more marginalized community, her death would not have gotten any notice by the media. We drove to their house, my husband and I, and we met them privately. And we have stayed in relationship mm-hmm. now for almost 10 years. Yeah. yeah. She's an incredibly brilliant woman who loved her daughter as much as I love mine. I can honestly say to Mm. this day, my family is not the same. Still isn't the same. I I still to this day say I'm doing a life sentence. Um, By the grace of God, they found the guy that killed my daughter. He got life, but I'm, I'm doing life. How did you feel about the way your daughter's death was initially reported on the news? It was hard because it was an after-hour nightclub. So it was like a lot of 
eyebrows went up because mm-hmm. what was she doing there? Mm-hmm. What was she doing in a nightclub? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, she's 26 and pay taxes. And it's a licensed facility that the state mm-hmm. allowed the owner to open. Yeah. You know what I mean? Why not? Right. Why not go where she want? Celeste noticed something else. Despite the fact that six people were shot that night, it wasn't talked about in the press as a mass shooting. What did your brain make of that difference? Like, it's literally in your face. Yeah. These inner city incidences, they're not considered mass. Mm-hmm. And is it now, okay, is it the color of your skin? Is it your zip code? What, what is going on for you to say this is a mass shooting? It's like, like how much more can I take? And, mm-hmm. you know, eventually I had, by the grace of God, I had to think of her. And, and what she would want from me. Can you tell me about Erica? Like, what was she doing back in 2012, 2013? She was that light. If I had a bad day at work, she come in. If I'm sitting on the couch, she would come in and be like, oh, no, we ain't doing that today. Let's go. Get up. Let's go. We're not doing that. Even just within her friend circle, Mm. she was that go-to person. If anybody was beefing, anybody had anything between them, she was that person to straighten it out, get everybody together, bring people together. You know what I mean? So she was always that uplifting person. Yeah. Um, (laughs) You know, I always laugh because she used to always say, Mom, VIP wherever I go. When it was mm-hmm. time for her funeral, me and my husband looked at each other like, oh my gosh, she really was. Because it was like literally over 2,000 people. Wow. She was very well known. Grief isn't something we overcome. It's something we incorporate into our lives. For me, it's been four years since I lost my uncle to pancreatic cancer. After years of trying not to think about him, I'm now in a place where when he pops into my mind, I'm thankful for that memory. Because as Nelba said, grief isn't something we should avoid. Grief often drives resources and solutions. But that hasn't happened with gun violence. Many Americans still dismiss shootings like Sandy Hook as one-in-a-million tragedies or something that doesn't happen in their neighborhoods. But the families who've lost loved ones to gun violence live with that grief every day. By not grieving with them, we're allowing ourselves to walk into tragedies that could be prevented. Because if we actually grieved, we might actually do something. Celeste is now part of a network of mothers, grandmothers, aunties, most of them Black, who've come together in recent years to support each other. I guess this is the path that God put me on that I never, I never, ever would have thought. But that's my, that's my story. That's my life. You know what I mean? To be able to go to them without words Mm -hmm. and just hold somebody because I'm a hugger. When I tell you that meant the world to me, Mm -hmm. Um, just to be able to get to another mom and just hold them. Don't Mm -hmm. even know them. 
Because I, I just wanted somebody to know I got you. That was WNYC's Tracy Hunt in conversation with Celeste Fulcher and Nelba Marquez-Green. The United States of Anxiety is a production of WNYC Studios. You can follow us wherever you get your podcasts or by going to wnyc.org slash anxiety. Our team includes Emily Botin, Regina Dehir, Karen Froman, Kusha Navidar, Rahima Nasa, and Jared Paul. Matthew Mirando is our live engineer. And I am Kai Wright. You can find me on either Instagram or Twitter at Kai underscore Wright, or just back here next Sunday evening. Thanks for spending this time with us, and I will talk to you next week. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.